Hi everyone, before we go into the podcast, I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm super grateful for your continued loyalty and support. If you could do me a quick favour, if you could give me a review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps the algorithm and it will help this podcast go up the lists. If there are any subjects or topics that you want me to cover, uh, then please do reach out to me on uh, DM on LinkedIn and I will do my best to find the best guest for that subject or topic. This is the Absolute Business Mindset Podcast, created and hosted by Mark Haywood. This podcast will interview entrepreneurs, business owners and people in their careers. We will delve into their journey to success, key life milestones and go deep into their area of expertise. Get ready to learn from other successes and failures. Today we have Steve Hoffman, who is the CEO of Founder Space and author of Surviving a Startup. Hello, Steve. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for, because I think you reached out to me, so it's brilliant to, to get you on. And I know we, we sort of knew um, uh, Henry, didn't we? Yes. Yes. We are connected. Yes. All right. So, so let's go straight into it. So, so you set up Founder Space nearly 12 years ago. What was the driving force of actually setting up that business? I have been an entrepreneur my whole life. So I've done three venture funded startups in Silicon Valley, two bootstrap startups. I know what it's like to be in the trenches. I know what it's like to go through everything, the, the, the glorious moments and the inglorious moments. After my third venture-funded startup, I was taking a break, and all my friends came to me. And in Silicon Valley, my nickname is Captain Hoff. And they're like, Captain Hoff, help me. I'm raising money for my startup. I need help with my business plan. So I started to help my friends out, and I found they all had similar questions. So I started posting the answers to those questions on my blog, and I called it Founder Space. Well, it grew from there. All these people started contacting me. We started setting up events. We started setting up founder space roundtables where we got investors in, marketing people, lawyers, entrepreneurs all together. And then after that, we launched our first startup accelerator in Silicon Valley. And after we launched that, people from all over the world, because we were early, started to come to us. So we went global. Today, we have over 50 partners in 22 countries, and we work with hundreds of entrepreneurs every year. That is absolutely fascinating. And it all started from literally people asking you a few questions, and you suddenly thought, oh, there might be a business here. Exactly. And I enjoyed helping them because I've been an entrepreneur. I know what they're going through. So it was first just, for me, actually a hobby, and then it grew into a business. And and the whole venture capital. So so you're talking about businesses that are established that want to accelerate or scale their business, and they come to you in the incubator, and they spend some time with you, and you then, in theory, and, and I'm sure you've got many cases and many testimonials that do this. You then are able to give them the the framework or the the, the process to be able to scale their business. Exactly. So the type of businesses we deal with. They start off small, maybe a couple people, but they have the potential to grow huge into the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world. So we are their first step. They come to us. They usually have a team. They have a product in development. 
and they want to get that going. They want to raise capital. They want to have marketing experts. They want to set up the right legal structure, everything they need to do to move forward and actually take that market. I don't want to upset all of, all of you can't so you can't go through all of them but are there any sort of clients that you've got at the moment or have been through your process that are growing scaling that I should be listening out for There are a lot <laughs> <laughs> So there are so many you know Chooch AI is one it's an AI startup pretty amazing their revenue is growing like crazy they are doing well EQBot was the first uh, ETF traded in the world powered by AI so that they they have a whole financial pro, uh, platform for pe- for managing portfolios stock portfolios online through artificial intelligence there's a grub market uh, they are doing incredibly well they have basically they work getting food from the farm onto the table and they are just expanding like crazy they've raised a huge amount of capital awesome thank you um so I don't know if this is a UK perspective, but I've recently, so I, I, I've, I currently run four businesses as well as a part of my podcast as well. And, and I, was ta- I talked to quite a lot of people who are either in startup mode or sort of growing. And they have said to me how incubators, and I'm not, I'm not casting you with this, with, this, uh, with this criticism, but incubators sometimes can be, good from the outside but once you're inside they fail to deliver on what they say they're going to deliver what makes you different in that what makes you successful being able to turn these businesses into huge companies we've been doing it a long time we have a global network so we not only help entrepreneurs in america in silicon valley but all around the world and what we became really well known for is entrepreneurs who are coming to Silicon Valley. So half the successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are not American. They are from every country on the globe. And they come here, but they don't have a, a, a big network. They don't have uh, the relationships they need. They don't know where to go, how to raise capital in Silicon Valley. We are that gateway for them. They're their first step into entering the market. Now, I will say, to anybody considering entering an incub- startup incubator or startup accelerator, do your homework. Like go online, research the company, uh, talk to companies who have graduated from that accelerator, find out if, if it's a good fit for you. There are some that are excellent and there are others that aren't, but that's true with everything. You go to a hotel, there's some that you know are five stars or they exceed your expectations and there are others that aren't. You so, got to do your due diligence with yeah, any sort of business. Any any time you engage a service provider, like in any way, you have to do your diligence. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, so your basic or your, your your major clients are in Silicon Valley. So for you, and I'm going to use it's a broad term, but I just want to think make you think about this. What what does innovation mean? to you and to the businesses that you help? Well, I wrote a whole book on this. It's called Make Elephants Fly, The Process of Radical Innovation. So I've thought a lot about it. And innovation in its purest form is not technological development. Like when you do heavy R&D, you know, for new technologies, like 
developing a transistor, developing uh, uh, new types of artificial intelligence. If you look at those core technologies, they've been around a long time, yep. like in a long time before they take off. Like AI was being developed in the 1950s. Yep. And it's only in the 2000s that it really blossomed and had utility. And that is because research and development costs a huge amount of money, very labor intensive. Innovation, on the other hand, is when you take existing technologies that have been developed and you actually put them to use in the real world. And this is what entrepreneurs are really good at. So entrepreneurs are really good at finding these technologies that have been around usually in the lab a while and are just emerging at the point where they can actually perform useful things you know, for businesses, for us consumers, for the environment, and they are looking for those opportunities. The question is, how do you innovate? And innovation is not simple because it's not a clear path. Like there's no, if it was a clear path, like if I said, I'm starting here and I want to go there, it's very clear, A to B, well, then everybody would do it. Like it, it wouldn't be innovation. It would have already been done. So really when you're innovating, you cannot, you don't know the future. You kind of have a sense for a direction. You're saying, I'm going to take this technology, and I think if I apply it to this problem, it can make a big difference. And then you start to figure out. You put it in the real world, and you might find out it's not working, or the customer doesn't want it. You try something else. You try something else, and eventually you get there. We'll be back after a quick break. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. Something that's been spoken about a lot in sort of social media and things is saying that if you solve the problems for the largest number of people, you will have a Google or a Amazon or whatever. Would you agree with solving problems is the biggest key aspect of business? If you are a new business and you want to grow in the world and you have to look out there and if other people are already doing it, already providing that service, already solving those problems, then why should anybody take a risk on a new company? They wouldn't. They would stick pride and true. The only way, there are only actually two ways a new startup can get ahead. And those, the first way is if you look at the competitive landscape and you say, I am going to do something so much better than anybody else out there that all the customers are going to come to me. Well, how do you do that? Usually, the way you do that is with technology. So you adopt a new technology that the incumbents already in the marketplace aren't using. That adds so much value to the customers. Boom. Yes, if there's a large market out there, if there's a lot of people who want that, you can grow very large. Or the market can be smaller, but if they're willing to spend a large amount of money, like let's say it's big corporations, you don't have to have, you know, millions of customers. You just have to have maybe the Fortune 500, you know, but you are offering a service very valuable to them and they have, they will pay a lot of money for it. 
The second way I talked about is not doing something. The first way is if you do something incrementally better, just a little better than your competitors, it won't go. Nobody will switch for you. So it has to be exponentially better. You know, an order of magnitude better for anybody to pay any attention to you and for you to grow. The only other way to actually enter a market and innovate is to do something different. Look for gaps, look for holes. And the beauty is that the world is in a constant state of flux. Nothing is ever the same. Like markets are shifting, needs are shifting. Technology itself creates new needs and creates new problems for people. So all the time, there, we are creating new untapped sources of demand. You have, as the entrepreneur, the innovator, have to go into that market and say, they, all these people need this and they really aren't getting it from their competitors and they need it so much, this could be a big business. You move into that first, you gain traction, and then you take off. And the whole goal of, of companies, especially venture funded companies, is to grow so fast that the big guys, they can't, they can't move in and take your market. Like they're too slow. And you just grow so big that you dominate that market, that segment. So this isn't technically a question that's for, for startups, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued because we go through business cycles and there's companies like Nike and um, Adidas and uh, uh, sort of McDonald's, which stand the test of time. But there's equally, there's companies that have got very big and then struggle, for example, retail. Retail has incredibly struggled because of the advent of Amazon. And a lot of lot of companies that do online retailing have really struggled. Now, do you think, taking the example of Amazon, who have just completely crowded the market on all aspects of, of retail, is there a company or is there potentially a company that might be niching at the moment in the way that Amazon was booked initially and a, a company that in 10, I don't know, 10, 20 years could rival someone like a big boy like Amazon is now? There is always that potential. So if Amazon at any point in its future drops the ball, there will be somebody to pick up that ball. Let's face it, you know, there's a lot of money to be made there. The thing is, Amazon has been pretty good about innovating itself. So, you know, it is putting a huge amount of money into it. You know, it developed the whole cloud computing market, pioneered that. It didn't just stop at e-commerce. Yeah. It is it is looking at logistics, using robots, warehouses, you know, completely automating that whole process. So they are making it very hard for competitors to displace them, which is what a dominant company should be doing. But as we've seen over history, you know, companies that looked impossible to displace suddenly disappear, like IBM. Like IBM was the PC maker. They owned that market. Yeah. And, you know, IBM is out of PCs, you know. IBM was the mainframe company, and they're out of mainframes. You know, the, the markets are constantly changing. There will be new types of computing new ways for people to purchase products in the future that we might not be able to conceptualize. And let me just give you an example. For example, brain-computer interfaces. We Right now, we buy products on our phones and our laptops, and it's clunky. Like, you know, we have to search, we have to read these reviews, we have to tap and type and all this stuff. It takes time. We have to compare. 
In the future, we're entering a future where we'll have AIs that will literally, on our behalf, go out and buy what we need without us thinking. Let's say some competitor out there develops really good buying AI bots so that you don't ever have to think about shopping. It just knows what you want. Let's say it's not Amazon. People could start to switch to that. Let's say we have these brain-computer interfaces where we don't need to type or tap. Like We just think about what we want, and all of a sudden, it, it goes out into the cloud, into the internet, and we can start oh, I need some toilet paper. Well, toilet paper shows up the next day. You know, oh, I'm running low on milk. Milk shows up. Somebody is going to develop a brain OS, right? A brain operating system that might supplant the current players like Apple and Google, you know, iOS. There will be brain OS, whoever develops that, and Amazon out there, and they may leapfrog them, take the market. That is always possible. And the world will always surprise us. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, I could talk about this forever. Startups, business, this sort of area, especially technology is totally fascinating to me, but I want to be true to my, to my podcast. We're going to, so we're going to go back to your degree and your masters, which are quite conflicting. So your degree was in electrical computing and engineering, and then your masters was in cinema and television. I know you spent some time in Hollywood, but what was why did you choose the the computing uh, initially, and then why did you then do the masters in in cinema and television? Well, my father was an MIT professor in, of all things, rocket science. So he was a rocket scientist. Right, and when I when I was young, he came to me and said, "Son, computers are going to be huge. You, they are going to rule everything. Study computers." So naturally, he's a smart guy. I listened to him. I went, studied engineering. I did quite well, had a lot of job offers, but also I have this creative side. And I really wanted to see what would happen if I pursued my creative dream. And since a child, I'd been making all these movies. I'd made 50 movies, like on my own with my friends, all these things. I wanted to have a chance to do that. So I got into the top film school in the US, USC, I went in for a master's degree got the master's degree, went out into Hollywood, started, actually, I, I rose up pretty quickly to a TV development executive in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And I was working there, great experience. But then all of a sudden, it dawned on me, Hollywood is going to totally change because I'm also a gamer. Like, I'm into games. Like, I, I love them. And I said, you know, computer games, and at these days, it wasn't true. Computer games were still a, a small business compared to Hollywood, like a, a fraction. But I said, they're going to overtake Hollywood. They're going to be bigger. And I met the founder of the game company, Sega. And this is when Sega had just surpassed Nintendo to become the number one video game company in the world. It was a while back. And I met the founder, and he said, come to Japan, design games for us. So we want somebody from Hollywood there. So I jumped ship and basically combined my engineering background, my computer background with my entertainment background, started designing games in Japan. Then I said, I want to make these games for me, not for Sega. So I came back to the U.S., launched my own game company, Lava Mine, put out my first game title called Gazillionaire, which is all about, it actually teaches people to be entrepreneurs, which is what I'm doing today. So in full circle, I came full circle. And the Gazillionaire was a big hit um, in the game, in the gaming world. And then I just went from there. That was my first company. And then I did many other companies, but all that right. got me Let's on the track. Unpack some of that. You've gone, you've gone very quickly through Hollywood, Japan, and then back to, to, to the US, which is 
a fascinating story and we will delve into that so so just so you were you were involved in what what uh, interactive television initially in hollywood is that right so after my first venture funded company which came after lava mind lava mind i bootstrapped that was a company where i actually coded the games myself because i had you know very little money at the time and just put them out there and they took off then i wanted to do something bigger so we decided myself and my partners decided we're going to launch a company called spider dance in spider dance the idea for spider dance was to combine our entertainment background with a new technology in essence making interactive tv shows we are one of the first people to do this and definitely the very first to do it in a big way so we got a deal with mtv at the time and this is viacom huge company to produce the first interactive tv show that you could play along with in real time on your pc at home so it was called web riot amit zappa frank zappa's son was the host it was a music game a music trivia game game show and people could actually play along on their on their computers and actually get their name on broadcast tv live in real time across the united states yeah. so we implemented that it had a huge following like uh, you know over a million people and in those days it was the early internet like this this was unheard of so that show was really successful we went on from there we did shows with NBC we did shows with Turner Broadcasting Game Show Network uh, Warner Brothers you name it we were working with everybody doing interactive TV so so i still want to unpack this this change from hollywood to japan so, so you were a TV executive and you were making choices about programs. How was that, first of all? Like you said, you rose up quite quickly. Uh, your, I assume your engineering degree didn't really aid you in that. How, how did you rise up the ranks so quickly in Hollywood? That's a crazy story. So if, if you're an entrepreneur out there, you got to hustle. I graduated film school. But when you graduate film school, even from the top film school, nobody in Hollywood cares. Like... They're, they don't care. Like Hollywood is very cutthroat, very competitive, and you have to know people to get any opportunity. So I graduated and I literally had no job offers. There was no opportunities. So what did I do? I, I found a, the Hollywood directory and it had the names of all the top producers in Hollywood and, and production companies. And I literally went down the list and wrote to 150 of them, wrote them each a letter and mailed it to them. I waited. The first response I got was a phone call. And it was from the producer of Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. Wow. He called me up and yeah, he was like, great letter. I, you know, this is, I and, I, and he goes, but I don't have a job for you, but I just wanted to say great job. And we had a conversation, right. he was super nice. And then he hung up. So that was strike one. Second response, and I only got three responses out of 150 letters, only three. So the second one was Disney. So the head of Disney production calls me up, invites me into their office. I am doing it. The interview is going great. I think I'm going to get the job. But then the director asked me a trick question. The trick question was, do you like Disney films? And I had just been to film school. 
I was like all these amazing directors, you know, Fellini, Godard, you study all these like experimental film directors. And so I was like really passionate about them. So I was honest and I was like, yeah, Disney films are okay. And then I started talking about all the great movies like of, of history that I really admire. Her face dropped completely, like went stone cold. And literally, she couldn't wait to get me out of her office. I had blown it. So Disney was off. Strike two. I'm up to bat for the third time. Um, for your British l- listeners, I'm using a baseball analogy, yeah. not cricket. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this was my last chance. Like, I had no other responses. And it was a big television producer. He'd won all these Emmys called Chuck Freeze. He had this office in Hollywood, on Hollywood Boulevard, right across from the famous Man Chinese Theater with his name on it, this huge building. I went up to the top floor. It was this gigantic office, like you would imagine in a movie. Like if you've ever seen Barton Fink, the Coen Brothers movie, like it was huge. He looks at me and he says, Hoffman, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write and direct movies. And he goes, Hoffman, come on, you just graduated. Let me see what I can do. So, so he, I leave his office and I wait and then I get a job off. But it isn't the job I wanted. It was a job as reader, reading scripts. And when you read scripts, it, it's, it's, it pays almost nothing, like almost zero. It's like slave labor. You have to read the script and basically you're screening out all the bad scripts. So the actual producers in the company don't have to read them. So your job is to say, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Usually like, 40 bad ones. Oh, I found a good one. You should read this good one. You know, one out of 40. So it's not the most gratifying job. But I kept going back to Chuck and saying, I can do more. I can do more. And to make a long story short, he promoted me. Like he he gave me my break into Hollywood. And he made me development executive at his company, which, you know, opened up a huge number of doors. And eventually one of the producers at that company, his cousin was the founder of Sega. That's how I got the introduction. Right. Okay. And then you went to Japan. And you, how long did you spend in Japan for? Well, in each of these jobs, I only spent a year because oh. I'm a very impatient wow. person. Okay. Yeah. So in Hollywood, like I was a development exec for a year. And after a year, I was like, oh, games, games are going to be huge. I want to try this out. Right. You know, and I got the opportunity to go to Japan. I jumped to Japan, did that for a year, designing games. And they're like, I can start my own game company. I don't have to work for them. I would go back to Silicon Valley, my home, and just start it. We'll be back after a quick break. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So do you think you suffer from the shiny penny syndrome? Probably, yes. <laughs> I am shiny. But now it's actually serving me well because my job is to find those shiny pennies. I am a venture capitalist, an investor, and I work with startups. So 
my job is to look for these things. I get super excited when anything new, new ideas, new technology, amazing people with that want to change things. Nice. So my job is to hunt for shiny pennies. So it's a perfect fit. Okay. So you, you move back. I, I just want to unpack Japan because Japan is such a different, what, 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 what sort of date was, did you move to Japan in? Oh, this was the, the, the early 90s. I was in Japan in the early 90s. Still, Japan was quite Japanese and not, it didn't have a lot of Western influence in the 90s. Was, was it difficult living over there? It was really fun. It was such a great experience. So I was like embedded with the Japanese team. And these are a team of very creative people making cutting edge games. And I was the only foreigner in that group, in my whole division. So the fun part was whenever they had an idea, because their big market was the U.S., they would come to me and they would say, what do Americans think? So if I liked the idea, if I thought it was cool, I'd say, oh, Americans will love it. And if I didn't like it, I would say, nah, Americans aren't going to like it. Although it was just my opinion and they were asking me. So I had an oversized influence in this group simply because I was a foreigner. And and the the gaming industry, so you 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 are absolutely right, has become huge, bigger than Hollywood, and produces games that are epically long and epically complex and things like that. What do you think the future of the gaming industry is now? It's just going to get bigger. The gaming industry, what we're seeing today, is amazing. But you can imagine, and this is not that far off in the future, when you can step into a game and not only see it, hear it, but feel like you are in the environment. Now, virtual reality, we've tried it. Like, it's a step in that direction. Not quite there yet. You know, for most people, they're like, ah, it's, it's better or it's different. Yeah. But it, I still don't feel like I'm in the game any more than I would if I'm playing on a big screen TV or a big screen monitor. However, um, we are coming to the point where we are figuring out, and I've been studying this, you know, brain-computer interfaces, things like that. I've been studying that technology. Actually, my new book, The Five Forces, which will come out in August, is all about tech, these new technologies and how they're going to change you know, industries. One of the sections in the book is about the gaming industry. And literally, we are going to be able to simulate in the brain, and they can do this now, uh, ways for us to actually... The brain is a black box, right? And literally... The brain only knows and adapts very quickly to what input, like from our eyes, from our ears. They can already create bionic eyes, right? They have done that. That can actually simulate vision, you know, put the signals in. They have created cochlear implants, which are essentially, you know, electronic ears. We can actually, in the future, we'll be able to create these stimulation devices that will be able to stimulate in our brain feelings, sensations, even images in the future that will be lifelike. And so there will come a point where we will actually be, you know, you'll literally sit down, but you'll feel like you're on another planet running. You'll feel the wind, you know, in your hair. You'll, I don't have any hair, but if you had it, what? Are we away from that? Excuse me? Sorry. How many, how far away from me are, are we? So years wise. That's a great question. So it's, we, a lot of these technologies don't go in a linear fashion, right? So you don't have it, you don't have it, and all of a sudden it's there, right? And it just takes off. Um, we don't know. What I can tell you is that right now in the laboratory uh, with brain-computer interfaces, people can do a lot, 
Like they can do amazing things. Like already they have, they have put chips into human brains. These are people who have had strokes, you know, locked in syndrome and literally having the chip in their brain, they can control an electronic arm and feed themselves. They can drive around in a wheelchair. They can send text messages all just by thinking. That is the first step. So that is happening right now. That is today. That's not science fiction. They have even in the laboratory taken rats and literally they have enabled rats with chips in their brains to send information, knowledge from one rat to the other rat. One rat figures out something, how to get food. The other rat instantly knows it. They have trans, you think about that. That's amazing. Right. Me transferring knowledge to you, right? Oh, that is possible today. It's not commercial yet but it will become commercial. So in the next 10 years or so, we're gonna see applications taking advantage of these technology. What I described is even further out. So that's 20 years, let's say 20 or 30, hard to predict, but it will come. It's just because it's biologically and technologically possible to do that. So all of those things are possible. Um, we just uh, have to get to the point where we have the technology to do it. This is fascinating. Um, so, so in theory, if I have read a book, I can transmit all of my thoughts on the book. It was good in this bit. It was bad in this bit. I, I liked this or this was badly written. I could transport all of that into your brain at the moment. So what we have today is technology where we can read the brain. So we can figure out what a person is thinking and actually do it. They've actually, a person who could not talk, like they literally could not talk because they were a, a, a stroke victim. They could, they've actually uh, read the person's thoughts. Like they have, they can now actually construct their thoughts into words, into language, really hard problem. They just had that breakthrough. Those we can read, we can read today writing to the brain, which you described, like actually taking that and putting it into my brain without, you know, simply telling me, you know, through audio input or some other way. Yeah. Um, we are not at that point yet. Okay. Can that happen? Well, they did an experiment again with a rat because we like to do these on rats. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, they had a rat <laughs> and a human and the human had a brain computer interface on a non-invasive one, a cap that they wear and the rat had a chip in its brain and the human could actually control the rat through the maze, actually guide it. So it was putting information into that rat's brain. Right. The amazing thing is the rat didn't even know it. The rat assumed it was making the decisions of where to go through the maze, although it was the human doing it. Kind of scary. Like, so this technology is both fascinating, huge potential and scary at the same time. <laughs> it's proper science fiction. <laughs> um so tell me about your uh your book let's talk about your your recent book surviving the startup but equally one of the things you told me was that you're actually dyslexic as well so how how has it been writing three books with with your with dyslexia being dyslexic is definitely not an advantage and i wouldn't recommend it to any, any, anybody like you're born with it so you can't get it but uh being dyslexic, you know, you mix up the words. It makes it hard. When I write emails, they're always typos. I never can see them myself. You know, it slows the process down. However, any, I believe you can rewire your brain. This is my, uh, and, and it's been proven in experiments that you can actually change your, your neural structure. Your brain is very malleable. 
so you can rewire your brain. I have overcome a lot of my dyslexia simply by reading all the time, by, by uh, engaging my brain and, and improving it. Now, am I as good as a person without dyslexia? I'm still a slow reader compared to somebody without dyslexia. Do I make a lot more mistakes? Yes, but I can write books. Like books are really about the idea. It's not about the speed at which you type and write. It's not, we have uh, uh, spell checkers and proofreaders to get rid of all the errors. It's really about the idea. So it has not slowed me down. And because famously people like Richard Branson have dyslexia as well. And um, uh, uh, it's, it's well known that entrepreneurs often have not necessarily conditions but they 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 or it's like i can't remember that someone had they their parents passed away very young and things like that that have impacted and and they the sort of general thought is that people who struggle with these sorts of things they become rule breakers and they don't confine by a job and they just want to do their own business because they've always been constrained by a condition or by a, 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 something that's happened to them. Would you agree with that? Your dyslexia actually has become made you to have a superpower of rule breaking or. It's hard to know from my subjective point of view, like who would have I been without dyslexia? I can't know. Right. It's, I don't know what type of person I would have been without it. I can tell you that if you have a disability, and all of us have some weaknesses, like it doesn't matter who we are, but there's two ways. There's one to blame your weakness for not being able to do something. And then that is not constructive. That does not get you anywhere. In fact, that holds you back because you're saying, oh, I'm dyslexic, I can't do this. Or you can say, dyslexia is a challenge. I'm gonna do everything I can not to let it get in my way. I'm just going forward. And the people who do that are natural entrepreneurs. It doesn't matter if you have a disability or not. If you're the type of person who treats everything that comes at you as a challenge, not a burden, right? Not something that's, uh, you know, oh, poor me, you know, I, I have this. You're just like, oh, it's another challenge. I'm going to climb that mountain. Then you are, you are naturally uh, suited an entrepreneur. So I would say I have that personality type. There are dyslexics out there who don't, right? And they probably wouldn't be an entrepreneur. I'm, you know, not all dyslexics are great entrepreneurs. Um, Everybody's different. We each have ourselves, but a lot of it is, do you have the drive and can you get the right mindset to move forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So when you came back to Silicon Valley, you set up two startups when you came back. I think one was a, one was a gaming company. What was the other company? Oh, so my first company was LavaMine. So that was a gaming company. And it was basically my company. We produced games and put them out into the world. And, and you also did a second one. What was oh, this? Spider Dance. That was the one I told you about, the interactive TV. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. I've got it. Okay. So, um, so I want you just to give me a view of investment as you as as you're in venture capital but how for some of my audience that don't really know the breakdown of sort of seed funding angel funding venture capital what what's the sort of progression for so say one of my businesses we want to we want to do something we obviously well not obviously would we ever jump to VC funding or would you advise them to go down the seed route and the angel route? And then if your business still is able to scale, you then re is, is there a sort of progression for investment to VC money? 
there is a progression. So in my book, my new book, Surviving a Startup, I really go deep on this. I go deep on you know, how you survive as a startup, how you beat the odds. Most startups don't make it. And a big one is raising capital. So there are, you have to understand what your business is. There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are great entrepreneurs, but their business is not right for venture funding. And they shouldn't even waste their time. Like if you don't have a business that will grow really big, really fast, it's not right. If you have a business, a small business, even a steadily growing business, you know, it's not right. You have to have something that breaks through in a big way. Now, if you do this, there are stages to venture funding. The first one is angel funding. And that's when a person puts in a small amount of money. It can be $10,000, can be $100,000, $200,000, small amount of capital to actually get you going. Now, at this stage, you don't have to have your idea fully flushed out. You don't have to have everything proven. The angels are willing to take a risk by coming in early, but they're getting a substantial percentage of your company for giving you this money early. So they might give you $200,000, but they're taking 25% of your company. So they're taking a big risk, but getting a big reward if, if it pays off. As your company grows, your valuation will grow. So your company will become worth more and more and more, and, and, the, and the investors correspondingly, we'll put in more and more money. Now, here's the rule of thumb. In Silicon Valley and in most other places, uh, every round of funding usually comes in around 20% of your company. So there's a 20% dilution in every round. So if if I'm given $200,000 and I'm an $800,000 company, my valuation is $800,000, that's a million dollars total. That's 20%, right? So my market value at that time would be $1 million. Now, if you grow bigger, right, for your next round of funding, and you're raising, let's say, uh, your valuation is $4 million, and you're taking in a million in capital, again, it's 20%. And along the way, um, you'll go from angel funding to seed funding to basically pre-Series A funding, and then Series A funding, Series B, Series C, so on, raising more and more and more capital. Thank you for that. That's really fascinating. Um, so as you're in the sort of tech in area, what do you think is going to have a bigger impact on, uh, on us as consumers, um, AI or blockchain? That's a great question. And there are two very different technologies. So AI is what I call a universal technology. It can be applied to almost any business in the world, almost any activity. You can make it smarter, right? Any electronic device, IoT device with AI, it could probably perform better. Any process in any company, apply AI to it, it can perform better. In our personal lives, you know, what we do, like, oh, I want to I want to think about what movie to watch. AI can go out with its deep learning algorithm and knowledge of you and actually find a movie that's much better for you than you probably could yourself without spending a lot of time. Mm -hmm. That technology is going to be pervasive. It is like electricity. It, It will change everything. Blockchain is a much narrower technology. Very powerful, very innovative, but fundamentally narrow. So blockchain was built for one purpose and one purpose only when it launched, and that was cryptocurrencies, right? It was to power Bitcoin. That that was the blockchain. Now, blockchain is evolving over time. People are applying it to other things. What we found out is that blockchain 
a lot of times people say, oh, I'll make, I'll use blockchain on this. And you're like, why are you using blockchain? And they're using it because it's the hot new technology, but it doesn't work. It's like trying to hammer a nail with a screwdriver, right? The screwdriver is good if you have screws, but really bad <laughs> at hammering nails, you know? So a lot of people are applying blockchain to problems that really aren't suited for it. You know, if you have a decentralized a system like blockchain, it's all about being decentralized and managing that. That is really good for, for things like cryptocurrency and, and other things out there. Mm -hmm. However, um, a lot of corporations and almost every government in the world I know wants to control things. Like they want everything under their control. So they'll use blockchain, but they don't really want blockchain because what they want is to own it and control it. And that's a centralized traditional database. You don't need blockchain for that. In fact, you shouldn't be using it. So um, unless people understand this, then they really don't understand these technologies. They both will have a profound impact, but in very different ways. Great answer. Probably the best answer I've had when it comes to discussing blockchain. So thank you very much for that. Um, what's the next plan for you? The next two to five years? What's what's what, what's what's in the world for Steve? Well, I am right now. Um, I am really dedicated to helping entrepreneurs globally. So any of your audience out there who are entrepreneurs all over the world, I prior to the pandemic, I was traveling seventy percent of the time. Then I went into hibernation, like all of us did during the pandemic. Um, now I, I got vaccinated, so I'm traveling 100% of the time. I'm literally, I decided to give up my home and literally travel all the time. I just traveled across the United States. Yeah. You know, I'm in New York now. Now I'm looping back and then I'm going to go overseas and so on. So I am going to be running programs with entrepreneurs globally. I hope to get to the UK and Europe very soon in the not too distant future, yeah. running programs there. I'd love to collaborate with you. Um, and working and really what attracts me most are cutting edge technologies like and cutting edge ideas. So entrepreneurs out there who are really pushing the limits, who really want to go further, my role is to help them refine their products, help them uh, refine their vision, point out things, roadblocks ahead, and then uh, connect them to capital. Fantastic. That's amazing. Okay. So uh, we're coming to the end of the interview. I've got the same six questions, which I ask all my uh, guests. They're quick fire questions. They don't need a quick fire answer. First one is, what's the best decision that you made? The best decision I ever made was to do what I wanted to do. So my entire life, I have had, like, you probably put your thing on it. I, you didn't even scratch the surface. I've had more careers than Cats Have Lives. I've tried so many different things. I was a manga rewriter at one time. Right. You know, I was the electrical engineer. I've been game designer. I've been all these different things. That's what I encourage people to do. Interesting. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? Best keep of, piece of advice I've been given. You know, I go out there and helping entrepreneurs raise capital. I've raised a lot of capital for my own companies too. And the best advice I've been given is push for a no. What does this mean? Push for a no. It means if you have an investor, let's say out there, and they won't commit to the deal, they're like, oh, that's nice, blah, 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 blah. You know, and they keep leading you along, go to them and say, try to get them to say no. Because if you push for no, suddenly you're in a power position and they're all of a sudden have to make a choice. Like if you want them to say no, either they're going to get scared of losing the deal and say yes, or they will say no and you'll get that no earlier. You don't want to waste your time and psychic energy waiting for a no that is eventually going to come. You want to know that they're not going to commit. 
Excellent, excellent, excellent uh, advice. Who's helped you most in your career? So my wife, my wife has been the number one person, you know, everybody, she's been a partner to me throughout my whole career in so many different ways. She is the one. Excellent. Do you have any regrets? I have small regrets. So there was a time uh, early in my career when YouTube came to me and a couple other guys and we were working on something and offered to buy us. And we said, no, we want to do our own thing. And this is right before they got acquired. Bad decision. <laughs> uh, what are you most proud of? I am most proud of... I'm most proud of the early games I made. So when I uh, combined my electrical engineering and my filmmaking and created the game Gazillionaire, Profitania, Zapitalism, those games were true labors of love. Like I put everything I had into them. And surprisingly enough, they're still available today. Like they're on Steam. And yeah, you can go on Steam and get all those games. Now they, they're a little dated, but yeah. the gameplay, people still love them. They're like getting five stars because people love, you know, that, that core gameplay really works. That's amazing. Uh, what does legacy mean to you? Legacy? Yeah. So when I hear legacy, I mean, what are you going to leave behind for future generations? What, what, what will you contribute to this world that you can be proud of, you know, after you, you retire or pass away? Mm. My answer to that is the world faces so many critical problems today. So many huge challenges. The only way we're going to get ourselves out of the mess we're out of, and you're in the UK right now in a heat wave, so you're experiencing it too, is through technology. Honestly, politics are a mess, right? We can't even get us, our countries to agree on much, yeah. let alone take the type of action we need to take. We still need to do that. But we really need young entrepreneurs with new ideas to tackle the hardest problems out there, the problems that are going to make the biggest difference. If I can help those entrepreneurs in any way, that's enough for me. Amazing. And where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? If you want to reach out to me uh, for any reason, just go to founderspace.com. So go there. Uh, you can see all my books on, on the site. You can go there and apply to Founderspace Incubators. You can apply for venture funding and you can contact me. So founderspace.com or you can look on any of the social networks. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, Founderspace. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Really, really fascinating. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, pleasure.